welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Doug Broad to talk about the myriad connections between Kiss, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and Stars, a group of 70s hard rock bands that are weirder than meets the eye. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. let it roll i'm your host nate wilcox and tonight we're joined by doug broad the author of they just seem a little weird how kiss cheap trick aerosmith and stars remade rock and roll doug thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me so this book got a lot of buzz from all my rock and roll friends right away and everybody was asking stars who's that except for a couple of metalheads who knew exactly who stars was but i want to before I, before I let you talk, I want to introduce a concept. You, you tie it all together in the book. You say, what exactly was it that the fans of KISS, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars latched onto? What made these four bands seem to be of a piece? And you say that the um, all four of these bands um, didn't, let's see, they embraced maximum exaggeration. Kiss may have seemed like supernatural comic book beasties, but anyone could tart themselves up to look just like them, and many still do. The two studs and two duds and cheap trick did nothing if not upend the traditional notion that all members of a band had to look cool to be cool. Aerosmith, with their striped unitards, flouncy scarves, and gonad squishing dungarees, took stereotypical hard rock chic to its logical, illogical extreme. As for stars, they were ultimately an endearing composite, Kiss and Aerosmith fighting to the death, armed with cheap tricks pointed hooks, spangled perpetual openers, punching the clock for rock and roll. So thanks for bringing these all together. What inspired you to write this book and to immortalize those four bands together? Well, wow. Um, so I, I, I fell in love with Kiss when I was around 10 years old, 11 years old when they first came out. And I was really attracted to the whole comic book sort of horrific imagery that they had. And then the songs came later. Um, but I love the music as well. Um, and, uh, you know, Cheap Trick turned out to be my favorite band of all time. I was into them from the beginning as well. Um, Aerosmith has always been one of my favorite bands. And I didn't really discover stars until later on in fact probably not until around uh 15 16 years ago when some of their material was re-released um through Ryko disc on cd um but the reason i chose these four bands is that uh members of all four of them played on gene simmons 1978 solo album um and i thought it would be a really kind of cool launching point to, to look at 70s hard rock, but through the lens of these four bands. And all four of these bands were really connected in many ways, whether they shared producers, they shared management, they toured together, they played on each other's records, and some of them were friendly um, with each other. And then at the same time, some of them were rivals. So I thought it would be a nice way to tell 
a 70s rock story, but in kind of a unique way. And and I, I definitely think you pulled it off. There's a ton of interwoven threads here and uh, just dizzying web of connections. But first, let's give the context for early to mid-70s rock and roll. This is not the free will in 50s anymore. This isn't even the garage rock 60s. It, the days when you could cut a record in your garage, print it up and take it down to the local radio station and, and have a breakout regional hit, maybe even a national hit, are long gone. Um, what was it like? How did bands get started? And why were people like Bill uh, Coyne, if that's the correct pronunciation, mm -hmm. and, and Lieber and Krebs so important to these bands? Well, uh, one of the one of the main points I wanted to make in the book was that these bands were also related in that they were all very flamboyant and theatrical on stage. You know, in the in the early seventies, right before these bands started, you know, rock and roll was Led Zeppelin. Um, it was um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and it was. Um, uh, Pink Floyd and Grateful Dead and um, all these other bands that that didn't really have and Black Sabbath and Pink Floyd. There, there wasn't a lot of humor in the presentation and there wasn't a lot of theatricality. But these bands really brought the show to the arena. And that's kind of what I wanted to sort of bring together with these artists. Back then, you know, someone like Bill O'Coin, who was Kiss's manager, you know, Kiss was his first band that he managed. Um, he was a TV director and um, he wanted to get into music management and he had found Kiss and he shaped him. And he, along with his uh, his lover at the time, a guy named Sean Delaney, Sean Delaney was, was instrumental in, in helping them, you know, uh, really... Uh, you know, honed that theatrical quality and the, 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 the acting on stage and the choreography and the movement. Um, someone, you know, people like Lieber and Krebs, who were Aerosmith's management, um, you know, they also had a very kind of show busy background. Um, and, you know, the Aerosmith was their first big artist. Um, and on the back of Aerosmith, they had they had other artists like Ted Nugent, they had ACDC, um, they had Rex, which was another band that had ties to stars, which, you know, uh, is one of the other kind of tangential um, uh, connections in the book. So all of these these managers at the time were also looking for bands that were that were show bands that can play arenas. And arena arena rock was becoming really important back then, and and a really a really important place to showcase music. Yeah, absolutely. And it, this was a period, and this isn't something you go into explicitly in the book, but this is a period when a lot of club gigs, especially on the East Coast in New York City, had dried up. If you weren't playing a cover band, there was very little opportunity to get club gigs um, and, and start a scene, the kind of organic scenes that you'd seen in Greenwich Village or Long Island in the 60s or, you know, on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood in the mid-60s were almost impossible to get going in this period of time. And I think disco was a big part of it. And not just disco, qua disco music, but disco meaning clubs where they played records. So 
a rock and roll band had to compete with something like Rodney Bigenheimer's disco in L.A., where they're playing the glam rock and heavy metal records uh, that you wanted to imitate, you know, so everything's very constrained. The independent labels of the 40s, the post-war independent labels have pretty much dried up and the punk independent labels hadn't come along yet. So there's a ladder and you had to get in on the bottom and all of these guys did it. You had a great description of Sean Delaney as the Henry Higgins of Kiss, the guy who you know, taught him not how to say the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plane, <laughs> but how to put on a show for an arena. And there's another band you didn't mention that um, Lieber and Krebs managed before they managed Aerosmith. And let's hear a little bit of Aerosmith. This is Aerosmith's Lord of the Thighs. And when we come back, we'll hear about the band that started out Lieber and Krebs. And that was Lord of the Thighs by Aerosmith off their second album, Get Your Wings, which was produced by Jack Douglas. And Lieber and Krebs started out managing the New York Dolls, which in some ways made perfect sense to me because I have a vivid memory that my older brother tells me is my imagination. But I really remember this of my brother coming home with the first Aerosmith and the first New York Dolls album and seeing them very much as comparable. And... I remember looking at him and hearing his friends talk about how they were both Rolling Stones ripoffs. And that was and and one group, of course, um, you know, instigated a bunch of homophobic remarks. But the New York Dolls also inspired Kiss to get going. What what is it like, you know, retrospectively, we see the New York Dolls as this punk inspiration, very different from these arena rock bands. Why was that not visible to people on the scene at the time? Well, it's funny, you know, New York City at that time, uh, it's Richie Rano, who I interviewed, who was the guitarist and stars, was telling me that he was trying to get a hard rock band going in New York in 1970, 71, and there was no action whatsoever. There, there weren't bands playing that music. Along come the Dolls, and they inspired so many bands from that era to make music. You had bands like the Harlots of 42nd Street. You had uh, Wayne County and, and oh, sorry, it, Wayne County, who was also Jane County back in the day. Um, uh, you know, all of these bands that followed in uh, the Dolls Wake, one of those bands was Kiss. I mean, they saw the Dolls. Um, they didn't think much of the music. Um, but they thought the presentation was really cool. Um, and the same with Joe Perry. The first time Joe Perry saw them, he he was totally in love with them and ended up that he and, and David Johansson from the Dolls became very close friends. Yeah, and it's it's interesting the the sort of different reactions that the different bands on the scene had to them. And you know, Gene Simmons even his hat to the doll songwriting and he said their problem was they just couldn't stay in tune but the thing that these four bands had in common that the dolls did not have in common was these guys all worked their butts off and they were willing to rehearse 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 uh kiss said they didn't fit into that scene at the mercer arts center because they were rehearsing seven days a week and uh 
you know, they just didn't have time to be making a scene at Max's Kansas City with Iggy and Lou Reed and and Andy Warhol and Mick Jagger, et cetera, et cetera. They're busy working. And all these guys, you know, there's there's quotes in there uh, about Aerosmith and how they just wanted it more than the dolls and and also hadn't gotten hooked on heroin yet, which was a big disadvantage for the dolls. So, um, you know, but there's also a period where this is a period where FM radio is changing dramatically. It's it's still a fairly young medium. It's only exploded since the late 60s, but it's already becoming formatted. It's It's gone from a format that was almost all freeform, driven by the DJ, to... Um, not quite top 40 like AM radio, but people like Lee Abrams, the famous legendary radio consultant who invented album Warrior radio, are out there. And it's also a time when there's no internet and there's no cable TV, really, only in a few places. So there's no MTV. There's, there's no way to reach the whole country at once. And radio and magazines are pretty much the only way to get through. And in order to even get on that ladder, you have to have a contract with a major label deal. And people like Jack Douglas that I already mentioned, and also Eddie Kramer, who is the legendary engineer producer, worked with Jimi Hendrix and so many others, who was a big factor in Kiss's career. How did guys like that help bands like Kiss get started and make the demos that brought them to the attention of people like Neil Bogart at Casablanca Records? Well, so with KISS, they did a first uh, demo with Eddie Kramer, uh, but it turned out they didn't actually work with Eddie um, until a few albums in. Um, they worked on their first album with Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. Um, and, you know, the, it's it's been criticized uh, that, that KISS's first few records sound a little rinky-dink in the grand scheme of things are not extraordinarily powerful. I love them because they're great songs played really well, and they're very crisp-sounding. They're not overproduced at all, so I kind of like that about those records. And Jack Douglas, one of his things was that he wanted to capture bands like Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, who he also produced. He wanted to capture them raw the way they played live. So that was kind of his philosophy. And in the case of Cheap Trick, unfortunately, that, that philosophy, while it made a great album, their debut album, the album didn't sell because it was almost too raw for the radio. Um, and then a band like Cheap Trick, they tried to overcorrect with their second record, uh, In Color, uh, which was produced by Tom Werman, and overcorrected to the point where the record sounded actually too poppy and perhaps too thin. Uh, and that was one of the complaints that the band members had about that record. So, um, yeah, so, so producers back then played a really important role uh, when it came to getting the bands on the radio, but not all of them were successful. Yeah, and stars out of the four of, of them, obviously, they're the ones who didn't make it, but they came very close. They, they, um, were managed by the same team that managed KISS. There was a lot of money put into them. They were one of the few hard rock acts on Capitol Records. Capitol put a lot of money into them. Jack Douglas produced their first two albums, which are really brilliant. I mean, I want to thank you for introducing me to Stars. I'd heard the name, but I'd kind of written them off because my friends from the 90s who were in hair metal bands were the only people I'd ever heard talking about them. And 
listening to him, and when I listened to him before, I, I kind of wrote him off because I thought, oh, it's a Kiss ripoff. They, they sound like Kiss, which is a really, really superficial analysis. I mean, be warned, if you investigate stars at any length, they are hooky. They will get in your head <laughs> and, and stick with you. And if you live through the hair metal period, you will hear so many hit hooks that were stolen and recycled just 15 years later. It's incredible. But they had one hit, a one near hit. They made number 33 on the charts. And then an incident happened that stopped them cold. And first, before we do that, I want to play a Kiss song. This is Going Blind from Kiss. And when we come back, I want you to tell us about the incident of shocking violence <laughs> that hit stars in the bud. Kiss doing Going Blind, which is just a classic Kiss song. It's beautiful musically, and it's all about a 90-year-old man in love with a very young girl. <laughs> just classic Kiss bad taste. But so, Stars in 77, their second album um, has been released. They've got a single off that that's number 33 on the Billboard charts. They go to shoot a video now, what happens? Well, they were in L.A., um, and while they were in L.A., Bill O'Coin had them shoot promotional videos. It was before videos were really a thing, so they were more like they were shot on film, um, but they were shot on a soundstage. And they did three songs. One of the songs was Sing It, Shout It, which was supposed to be a follow-up single. So as the band were on stage... Um, they had the playback, so they were going to lip sync to it. They weren't going to play it live. And when the song was played back, they realized that it was edited. A couple of ver like a verse was cut out, and there were parts that they didn't recognize. So the band stopped dead. They stopped playing, and they confronted Bill, saying, well, "What's going on? Who, who who said we? Who made this edit? This is terrible." And he said, well, you know, we took care of it. And um, he, you know, basically the band were, were, were really upset by it to the point where the drummer, uh, Joe Doobie, um, basically jumped into the, you know, the pit and, and got into an altercation with O'Coin and knocked him to the ground and had his uh, hands around his throat. So, um, you know, it was just a fit of momentary anger or momentary rage. And they finally, you know, cooler heads prevailed. But the many of the band think that, you know, that that incident caused Bill to kind of lose faith in the band and not want to, you know, push them anymore. Meanwhile, you know, they had two albums after that that came out on Capitol. Um, and I interviewed a number of people who, well, especially one person, a, a, a high profile manager 
who said, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. A, 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 a manager would not sabotage his band. It's, it's too much trouble to do that. So, you know, that could have been a contributing factor to, um, you know, O'Coin's kind of, you know, hands-off approach to the band later on. Um, but some of the band members think that that was the, be the beginning of the end for them. And you found a piece of evidence um, that, or the band found a piece of evidence a couple decades later on that kind of confirmed some of the more paranoid suspicions. Like you, you've got some quotes from somebody who worked in a coin's offices who described stars as just a tax write-off for Kiss the whole time, that, that Kiss was making so much money they just needed a band to spend money on as a write-off. And years after the band is over, each of the members of the band got a notice from the IRS that they personally owed $74,000 in back taxes. They buy a storage locker. A coin has fallen from grace in a spectacular fashion and has left storage lockers full of his business records around and Kiss collectibles. And the guys in Stars, one of whom was selling Kiss collectibles at that point, realized, hey, there's a good chance that the paperwork we need to get ourselves out of this is in there. And it's probably full of Kiss collectibles I can sell at a profit, you know, so no risk. But they did kind of prove that it was a big tax write-off for a coin. Uh well, they they were able to find paperwork that exonerated them and and kept them from having to pay these back taxes. Um, also, Michael Lee Smith, the singer from Stars, tells a really interesting story about uh, when he had a beat with uh, one of O'Coin's accountants, one of his one of the band's accountants who um, presented him with a bunch of receipts for bridge tolls and just e extraordinary amounts of money that, you know, Michael said the band never accrued these debts or, or the, you know, these, these expenses. That's ridiculous. And um, he, he actually asked the, he confronted the accountant and said, you know, uh, what, is, what is this all about? I, we never crossed any bridges. And the, the accountant said, you've crossed many a bridge, my friend. Um, so there was this suspicion that, you know, there was something kind of untoward going on with the accounting for the band. Um, and that was actually echoed by another band that was managed by O'Coin that is also in the book called the Scat Brothers. And the Scat Brothers had um, members who were connected to both Kiss and Stars. So um, I had heard from one of the Scat Brothers members that he also was told about these kind of phony baloney um, expenses that were put toward the band that the band had nothing to do with. So there, there was, there, there appeared to have been some shady accounting going on at the O'Coin offices. Which is totally standard operating procedure, sadly, for many people in the music business. So, um, but one thing you, you alluded to the stack, Scat Brothers, and Sean Delaney, the Henry Higgins of Kiss, was was the leader of that group, and he actually met the bassist for the for Stars, either in a gay bar or a bathhouse, and so a very unusual sort of for an arena rock band to to have an out gay bass player who then later joins the Scat Brothers, and so it's just fascinating to me the 
twists and turns and the different faces these characters have. Another thing that's fascinating is that the drummer and bassist for Stars recorded um, as Looking Glass, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, which went to number one as their first ever recording. And and Richie Rano was in Stories, which had a totally... Uh, uh, covered a hot chocolate disco hit. So these guys had kind of a suspicious background as soft rockers before they uh, were converted to hard rock. But Michael Lee Smith, the singer, I don't think you can make those charges about the, the And he's the artistic driver of stars. He and Jack Douglas, the producer to me. One thing I want to get to, though, is the way looking back, it's very easy Oh, of course, Aerosmith was big. Of course, Kiss made it huge. Of course, Cheap Thrick had this breakthrough. But each of those bands had to kind of thread the needle and get lucky. Tell us the story about Aerosmith's first album and what happened after it flopped and they're about to get cut by the label. Well, they recorded their first album um, with a with a producer named Adrian Barber, who they felt didn't really capture the band as they wanted to be captured. And Stephen actually admitted, Stephen Tyler admitted that he didn't sing the way he should have been singing. And I think the band were actually kind of intimidated by the whole recording process because they had never really recorded before Stephen had, because Stephen was in a couple of bands um, as an older teenager. Um, but um, yeah, so the the record, they weren't really happy with it. Sounds kind of muddy. Um, maybe under a little undercooked um and you know they re they released dream on as a single and it didn't really do much um so clive davis who signed them was not going to renew their option um steve lieber who was one of their managers um went to clive and said listen you got to release dream on again it's going to do something and sure enough, they re-released Dream On. It actually sold pretty well, um, and Clive renewed the option. The record actually was re-released was re later on and did even better, um, years, like a couple of years later. So that was kind of a, a, an interesting record for them because it, it didn't really make much of an impact. It also came out the same day as Bruce Springsteen's first record. So there was a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, Columbia Records who had both bands. There was a little bit of competition there. Absolutely. And of course, many people in the business took Bruce Springsteen much more seriously. I mean, he's scouted by the great John Hammond and, and Aerosmith. You know, there's a great story in the book where Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic Records is invited out to see Aerosmith um, and immediately tells their management uh, these guys suck. I've already got the Rolling Stones. I don't need them. But if you talk to me for a little while, Clive Davis over there will give you a whole lot of money, which <laughs> <laughs> proved, proved to be the case. Um, but let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, Kiss and Cheap Trick and how they thread, threaded the needle to popular success. And so all of these bands have this sort of embryonic period, even after they're signed on a major label and, and money is being put into them, both by their management teams and uh, by their record labels, but they still haven't reached a mass audience. And Kiss immediately hit the road. And, and the whole trick was, you know, get on the arena circuit and open up for bands. Uh, even the Ramones did this. You hear these stories about the Ramones opening up for uh, Edgar Winter or Johnny Winter, one of the Winter brothers at, at uh, Forest Hills 
you know, famous uh, side of the U.S. Open. And you're just like, how did this happen? And it's like, this was the only way bands could get exposure at this point in time. So Kiss is opening up for bands like Argent and Motha Hoople and, and, you know, a wide range of bands. They have this crazy show um, that they have to push and fight to get to be allowed to do like there's a story in the book about a near knife fight that breaks out between the roadies of Aerosmith and Kiss because Kiss wants more stage space to do their show and do the elevated drum riser and the whole bit but it's only after they're they put out three albums none of which do very much and it's basically they're being pressured to, to put out these albums because even though they're not big hits, Neil Bogart at Casablanca Record has a massive cash flow problem. And this is just a great detail from the book because he spent a bunch of money putting out the audio collection of Johnny Carson jokes from the TV <laughs> show as records. <laughs> you know, and uh, anyway, but they're being pressured again to put out a fourth album. They don't have the material, they don't have the budget. So they do the classic Kiss Alive breaks them through and and from there the rest is history they bring in bob ezrin to do the follow-up you know rock and roll all night off the live album becomes a top 10 hit and cheap trick has sort of a similar arc in that they put out three uh records that that don't hit but then they become famous across the ocean tell us about that and how that results in a sort of accidental live album breakthrough for cheap trick yeah, so Cheap Trick um, had a growing fan base in Japan, so they went out there for a bunch of shows um, throughout Japan, and while there, they recorded what was supposed to be a Japanese-only live album. Um, the live album uh, actually got some steam here in the States, um, and imports started coming in and the band, I mean, the label decided to release the album here. Um, the band were not that crazy with the album. They thought that, you know, the, the sound was kind of patchy. They had a lot of, they had to do a lot of work um, on, you know, rejiggering stuff and overdubs and cleaning it up. So there was a lot of problems with their recording. Um, and that record, you know, became a huge hit on the back of the live version, I Want You to Want Me. Um, and, you know, the band became huge from that record. Meanwhile, they had already um, recorded Dream Police, which was the follow-up studio album. And they had to sit on that record for eight months. They couldn't release it. Uh, Epic didn't want to release the record before the live album sort of ran its course. So at that point, you know, the band, you know, is, is at its height. When Dream Police finally comes out, the band is at its peak. They're playing Madison Square Garden, which was their only, their, their first and only New York area arena headline show um, throughout their career. And, so they're hitting their peak, and at that point, um, they're also recording their next record. And Tom Peterson, who's the bassist, you know, he he decides to check out of the band. So it, it was a very like it, it was a very quick um, ascent for Cheap Trick. But once they got to that, you know, that that apex point, 
they couldn't sustain. And I didn't know the story about Tom Peterson. Tell us about his girlfriend, Dagmar, and why some call her the Yoko Ono of Cheap Trick. Well, I don't know if they call it the Yoko Ono of Cheap Trick. That's and I think me. that might, oh, okay. <laughs> I think that might be, uh, that, that, that is a little unfair, but Stop I'll say it. this. <laughs> I'll say this. Um, yeah, so, so Tom um, married a German woman named Dagmar. And from what I understand from the interviews that I conducted with both Bunny Carlos and Ken Adamani, who was their manager at the time, you know, she had a lot of influence and uh, on Tom and 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 pressured Tom and told Tom that he should be a bigger part of the band. He should be up front more. He should sing more of the songs. They should be sexier songs. Um, and, you know. I, I guess I wasn't there, but I guess he bought some of that and it caused some friction with with the other members of the band. Um, and at at a certain point, he was he was out. Um, he was out of the band. So, you know, that it's it's a really tricky thing for a band to hit a certain level like that and and lose a major member. And they really never recovered throughout the 80s. They had a succession of um, of different bass players come in. Um, and, you know, the records were good. They weren't great. They were good. Um, and it wasn't until Tom returned to the band in the late 80s that they actually scored their uh, first number one hit with The Flame. Yeah, and, and this is a thing I remembered at the time you know, there was a window there after Budokan came out, 79-80, when Cheap Trick was just the biggest band for kids like me and starting out middle school. But already the reputation was, oh, get their earlier albums. Dream Police is really good, but the album after that just falls off the table. And reading this, I was really reminded by how brief their run was. They, they were kind of between metal and new wave, both in terms of time and um, and their approach. They were seen because of Rick Nielsen's look. They were kind of a precursor of new wave. They kind of had a more tongue-in-cheek attitude than, than the other three bands we're talking about. And, you know, I can see an alternate scenario where they kind of rode the wave the way Yes or Asia or, um, you know, even ZZ Top, you know, were able to, to adapt to the 80s and, and, and stick with that, um, but just, just were unable to do it. And of course, you know, poor Stars never got the chance. But let's go ahead and hear um, from Stars. This is Cherry Baby, the song that almost broke through for Stars. Cherry Baby, which is as close as Stars ever got to a hit. It reached number 33 on the Billboard charts. And after that incident where the drummer assaulted the, the manager and 
the promotion was pulled for that single and they pushed a different song that didn't go anywhere. I think it made number 59 on the chart, something like that. And then their next album, they rushed to the studio into a much cheaper studio and encouraged to produce it themselves. And then the band falls apart. Two members are fired. They do a fourth album, Coliseum Rock, and then quit at the bottom. As, as Richie Rano describes it. Explain what happened there, and do you think that that was a real factor in them essentially being kind of erased from rock and roll history? Well, to go back to the, the, the third record that you mentioned that they produced themselves, it's called Attention Shoppers. And with that record, they were, they were um, basically told by Bill O'Coin, their manager, and by Capitol Records that you need to record hits. This record needs to be full of hits. So the band got into that mode and they wrote a lot of very poppy songs that didn't necessarily sound like the first two stars albums. They sounded a lot like Cherry Baby, which was the attempt at a hit. Uh, but that record didn't really sit well with fans because they felt like, you know, stars were really selling out to be pop stars. I happen to think that that's one of their strongest records. It's probably my it's second. Record. Yeah, it's probably my second favorite record after Violation, the second one. Um, I think that the songs are really, really strong. The, you know, the sound of the record is not as punchy and forceful, but it's not really what the songs really, you know, need. So after that record came out and did absolutely nothing, um, they you know, they lost two members. They lost Peter Sweevil, the bassist, and Brendan Harkin, one of the guitarists, and brought on um, a guy named Orville Davis as the bass player. And Orville had been in a bunch of other bands, including Hydra, which was a southern rock band from the 70s, who were really good and opened for Kiss a number of times. And he was also in a band called Rex, who I mentioned earlier, who was uh, Rex Smith, who was the brother of Michael Lee Smith, who was the lead singer of Stars. So there was another connection there. Um, and they brought on another guitarist named Bobby Misano. And for that record, Coliseum Rock, which was their fourth album, it's my least favorite of, of their records. I think there were a few pretty strong songs, but overall, it's it's fairly lackluster for them. Um, and uh, again, the band, you know, they didn't have a hit from it. And they were back to opening for Ted Nugent, for ZZ Top, for Aerosmith. I mean, that's kind of what they were always the perennial opening band. They they did a couple of smaller theater shows as headliners, but they were never able to make that arena headliner leap. And at that point, you know, they, they wanted to leave Capitol. They thought Capitol was not promoting them the right way. Um, they were they were not happy with Bill O'Coin. So they basically just threw in the towel. Um, they left Capitol. They left O'Coin. They, they did try to sort of make it on their own for a bit while they were in Los Angeles. Um, they did a bunch of shows. Um, at the Starwood, um, but they were kind of living at that point hand to mouth. They they weren't um, they they weren't tied to any label. They weren't tied to any you know big management, and then they just pretty much packed it in. 
Um, you know, Richie Rano and and Joe X Duby, the drummer, continued on with some other uh, projects. Um, Rano and Michael Lee Smith, the singer, uh, formed a band called the Hellcats, who had an EP that came out through an Atlantic Records offshoot, but that record went nowhere as well. So they pretty much, you know, after Stars dissolved, they pretty much had nowhere else to go. Um, and you had mentioned earlier that Richie Rano was a rock and roll memorabilia dealer, and that became his life, and that's what he's still doing now. And and there's some classic stories about Rano's run-ins with Gene Simmons uh, when one of the events that Rano's involved in starting becomes a pretty big kiss convention, and, and Gene uh, smells money and, and, and horns in on it. But Rather than focusing on that, I want to talk about the decline and fall of Kiss and Aerosmith, because both of them um, sort of collapsed at the top. The Toxic Twins, Steve Tyler and Joe Perry, were infamous for their excess and their drug habits. And I can still remember to this day when my brother came home, uh, he was a high school senior, and he came home with Draw the Line. And... This was one of the few occasions, I guess this was right after school or something, so they didn't kick me out or make my mom put me to bed or whatever. And I got to hear, you know, the excited tear the album open listening party. And I can remember it not making through the first half of the record. <laughs> half the people had left. Um, just and, and going back and listening to Draw the Line, it wasn't as bad as that. But that's the first time I've listened to it since 1978. Um, but. It's a definitely a massive fall off from Toys in the Attic and Rocks, which are the two albums they put out before that, which are just stone classics. And and I'm somebody who's hated Aerosmith with a passion since, you know, Dude Looks Like a Lady and their whole endless run of success in the in the nineties and two thousands. But I still love those classic early albums and Draw the Line is just you know, not does not deliver the goods. Kiss, on the other hand, has one of the most spectacular excesses of marketing in music history. What happened with Kiss that brought the whole thing down? Well, you know, Kiss had a lot of internal strife as well. I mean, Gene Simmons and, and Paul Stanley were the two really ambitious guys who held the band together. And they were really the creative force. They did, they did the lion's share of the songwriting. Um, and they were straight. They were, they were not, they were not, you know, they weren't indulgers. They weren't, uh, you know, into drugs. They weren't into alcohol. And, you know, they had two other members who were and who liked to party and the partying got in the way of their playing. Um, and, you know, soon Peter, Chris kind of checked out of the band. He didn't, you know, he, he barely played on Dynasty. He didn't play on Unmasked, which was Dynasty's follow-up. Before we get to Dynasty, tell us about the solo albums and the TV movie. Ah, okay. Well, the solo albums. So um, in 78, all four members released solo albums. Um, the band was going through some issues. Um, Paul Stanley says that it was, you know, they did the solo album so all the members could, you know, be appeased and explore. And he thought that this would kind of hold the band together. Meanwhile, from what I also read um, in published interviews, you know, the band had been thinking about solo albums way before 
there were any there was any of that real internal strife. So there's a little bit of myth making on the part of these guys after the fact. Uh, be that as it may, um, so Gene Simmons' solo album um, featured, you know, members from the three other bands in the book and a, a lot of other people to boot. Um, it was this kind of hodgepodge, you know, P.T. Barnum circus-like record with with different genres and, and just different kinds of sounds. Paul's record was kind of a straightforward, you know, rock and ballad record. Ace's record was, you know, a real guitar record with some really good songs. Peter's record was just kind of weird R&B, slow jam, not I mean, I, I think I've, I've, in my life, I've made it through his record twice, um, and I'm a huge Kiss fan, so <laughs> it's something that totally does not, you know, attract me at all. But at the time, Kiss were huge, and you know, they, the, you know, the, the, the label Casablanca and management thought that that this was a good idea. However, you know, when the records are not that great and they print up millions of them and they ship millions of them to stores and there are four of them. I mean, that's a lot to ask for, for a fan back in the day to, 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 to splurge on four records from this one band at the same time. So they had a lot of returns. The records didn't sell all that well. Um, they only got one hit out of all four records. And that was Ace's cover of uh, back in the New York groove. Um, so that was a pretty big debacle for them. Um, so yeah, but meanwhile, they're, you know, they were marketing geniuses. They already had the lunch boxes, the, the, the posters, the toys, um, you know, so they, they were, they were really smart a lot of the time, but at the same time, they, 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 they had these delusions of grandeur and it, they didn't pay off. Yeah, nothing will kill a band like having the the discount bins just chock full of your records. And I can remember that. I mean, three, four, five years later, the the discount bins were full of those solo albums, just on and on. But let's hear our last song. This is uh, Cheap Trick's original studio version of "I Want You to Want Me." the original studio version of the song that would go on to become Cheap Trick's uh, Breakthrough Hit, I Want You to Want Me. This was Tom Warman's production idea of how to handle the song, and I think it's just a great illustration of how vital producers were in this period, because this is a hit song. It was a hit song in the live version, and yet and Tom Warman was, you know, uh, primarily record executive, but he had had hits on other people, and Basically, you know, quite a bit of his work, Dream Police, um, Heaven Tonight, he did some really solid things with Cheap Trick, but he absolutely bungled that song. <laughs> and um, 
you know, reading through this book, it's very interesting because these people like Jack Douglas and uh, who produced, you know, Aerosmith and Stars, he never worked for Kiss because they had Bob Ezrin, who is famous for um, breaking Alice Cooper and producing all Alice Cooper's hits and then produced Destroyer, gets Beth, turns a Peter Chris song into Beth, which is the monster power ballad that that essentially broke Kiss through to a truly mass audience. They tried to go behind his back and get Jack Douglas for their next record. Douglas reaches out to Ezrin, you know, nothing doing. Um, this, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me the way that even these super successful bands are always walking on the knife edge. I mean, it's really, really, really hard to be a massively successful band. You have to keep all the personalities in the band working together as a cohesive unit. You have to work with the find the right producer and then work with them successfully, have the right management team, have the right relationship with the record company. One aspect we haven't talked about that is rock critics and how much more important magazines like not just Rolling Stone, but Cream, Hit Parader, Circus, um, on and on, were so important. And you've got a great sort of capsule history or description of the different magazines that were key in the time. But how did the critics react? Not just the critics, but also, I mean, I wouldn't really think of something like Hit Parader as critic heavy. It was really a photo book. Um, I can remember at the 7-Eleven just saw slick paper, cool pictures. Tell us a little bit about how the magazines helped and hindered these bands. Well, you made a point earlier where you said there was no internet, there was no MTV back in the day. There was really nothing. I mean, there were magazines that had these bands on the cover, had pages and pages of photos. Um, you could rarely see these bands on television unless you were watching late night shows like Midnight Special or Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Occasionally a band would show up, like a, a band like Kiss would show up on the Mike Douglas show during the daytime. Um, but there were really no outlets on television except for very, very few for these bands. Um, so really all, the, all you knew from these bands was what you read or what you saw in a record store, you saw posters, you saw like these standees, you saw the album covers on the shelves. Um, and you heard, hopefully, some of these bands on the radio. And unless they came to your town and you can see them live, it was very hard to even know what a lot of these bands looked like. So you needed magazines to show you. So the magazines played a really, really important role uh, back there during that time. You know, it's it's interesting because critics didn't really take to, well, to Kiss at all, with very few exceptions. They didn't take the Aerosmith. They didn't take the Stars, for sure. And, you know, a few critics came out for Cheap Trick. But a lot of the journalists back then who wrote for these magazines, they were very savvy, um, because you know, I interviewed a bunch of them who, who, you know, took on these assignments because they knew they could sell a Kiss story because people wanted to read about Kiss. Robert Duncan, who was working at Cream Magazine, told me that he would often, uh, you know, write stories for other magazines under different names, um, just because he didn't want to have too many, you know, 
stories with his name, too many Kiss stories with his name on it. And, you know, he was happy to, to make a buck from Kiss, even though he didn't really like him. The same with um, Wesley Strick, who was also a, um, who was a writer for Circus and Rolling Stone. Um, he didn't really care for Kiss too much, but he wrote about him because they, you know, people wanted to read about him. Um, he did, however, uh, like stars, and he was one of the only critics or journalists that I spoke to who actually had some kind words to say about stars because they were not a very well-loved band. Yeah, I mean, they, um, what you know, you you reprint several reviews of stars, and frequently they're just sort of written off as an also ran, and and one of them calls them uh, a contender in the arrow smooch sweepstakes, which is a, you know combining Aerosmith and Kiss in a cynical way. And it's just such a different era because you could actually make a living writing for magazines then. And sometimes even a pretty nice living. Like one of the writers talked about how he would write uh, music articles for porno mags and, and make, you know, 10 times as much as he could make writing for, you know, a quote unquote legit paper. So it's just a very different era. There's also a great story you tell about uh, Gene Simmons. And I think maybe one of the guys in, Cheap, one of the other bands invite, uh, uh, I think it's Ira Robbins of Trouser Press fame, out to eat sushi at a time when sushi <laughs> was just absolutely novel. And even somebody, you know, an experienced New Yorker, man of the world like Ira Robbins has is struggling to gag down raw fish. And these rock stars who've been to Japan, um, you know, are so much more worldly. So that was totally entertaining. But the last thing I want to get to is, you know, Kiss flops hard with the solo albums, but they jump right back on their feet with the Dynasty album and have a massive disco hit with I Was Made For Loving You, which Paul Stanley co-wrote with a guy named Desmond Child. And this is yet another one of these connections. What's Desmond Child's role in Aerosmith's comeback in the late 80s? Well, I like to say this. I like to say that if it weren't for Kiss and Desmond Child writing a disco song with Paul Stanley, Aerosmith would not have their second act. They would not have gone on to become this huge multi-million selling act in the, you know, in the in the 80s and in the late 80s and 90s. Um, and it's you could trace it back to the fact that uh, Desmond wrote this hit with Paul Stanley. They had a very good relationship. They wrote, you know, they 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 wrote some more songs when uh, Kiss took off their makeup and um, you know, had a career that way without any of the real pyrotechnics. Um, and at some point, um, Bon Jovi had asked Paul Stanley to write songs with them. And Paul Stanley, no, you should ask Desmond. So they asked Desmond. Desmond co-wrote many of the songs on Slippery When Wet. And that made Bon Jovi into this huge band that, you know, they usurped Kiss in that era, you know, in terms of, you know, hit singles and record sales. Um, and then when Aerosmith were trying to revive themselves after um, Done With Mirrors, which was kind of their comeback record, but didn't really help them come back at all, um, you know, the, their collaboration with Run DMC actually put them back on the map. And when it came time to do permanent vacation, um, 
John Kalodner, who was their A&R guy, suggested that Desmond Child come in because Desmond had so much success with Bon Jovi, among other acts. And if it weren't for Desmond's connection with Paul Stanley, he would never have had that Bon Jovi connection. So it's all this big kind of butterfly effect, something that happens kind of insignificantly early on, kind of blossoms into this kind of world-changing thing. So, I mean, Aerosmith, they do have Paul Stanley to thank for their second half of the career. Yeah, and that's something I was totally oblivious to. I, I heard the name Desmond Child, but I not somebody who's, you know, scoured the the credits on my Bon Jovi records. They're actually never on any Bon Jovi records. And I, I think I had permanent vacation, but at some point just became violently allergic to, to <laughs> 80s and 90s Aerosmith and had kind of blocked that out. But anyhow, it's just it's just a fascinating tale. The book is great. Um, the book is they just seem a little weird. How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith and Stars remade rock and roll. And the guest has been Doug Broad. Doug, thanks so much for weaving these things together, putting this story in such a great, coherent, readable form, and especially for introducing me to stars. Uh, my pleasure. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to kick off a new eight-week miniseries on Rock Docs. The first episode focuses on Les Blank's unconventional and long, unreleased documentary on Leon Russell. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Edward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.